Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, and on this show, we dig into some of the fantastic games and gaming supplements that Warlord Games puts out for us to enjoy. And if you can hear the enthusiasm in my voice, that is because we have one of my favorite returning guests to the to the show this week to talk about one of my favorite game systems made by Warlord Games, or any game company for that matter. And... As if that wasn't enough, I have an old internet buddy on as well, and we are going to be talking about a very cool part of World War II, and if we're talking World War II, we have to be talking bolt action, and I'm excited that the one of my, the nations that I come from is being represented on the bolt action table at long last, the Canadians, but we're going to get to that in a minute. I'm burying the lead. Now, my first guest, of course, has been on this cast before several times talking about all sorts of things, usually bolt action related. He's written the Battle for France. He did the New Guinea book. But more importantly, he did one of my favorite bolt action books, hands down, Battle of the Bulge. Of course, I'm talking about Mark Barber. Welcome back to the Warlord cast, sir. Hello, Brad. Thanks very much for having me here. Man, it is always a pleasure to have you, and I cannot wait. You are digging into some very exciting new corners of World War II. It's not, uh, it's not the D-Day book that we saw before. It, is a, it says D-Day on the cover, but it's a whole new ball game out there, and I cannot wait to dig in. Um, you have to be excited. This is such a big, iconic part of World War II. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of if if you're starting to write about land battles in World War II, um, it's almost like the big one, isn't it? It's uh, mm-hmm. you kind of turn up to Warlord and and want to be writing for them, and you, you get some you know New Guinea difficult difficult stuff like that, and then yeah. this this is kind of like the prize almost. It's the one you you really want. So knows when this one came uh, got emailed across yeah very very excited to be a part of this one nice now you were not alone in this endeavor and of course i did say there was a second guest and uh, i've got to bring on old friend of various podcasts that i have been on in over the years and a very prolific uh, and active bolt action player and member of the bolt action community as a whole gaz welcome to the Worldcast, man it is awesome having you Yes, so something I've been uh, always wanting to say, especially on this cast, because it's the first time I've been on a cast with you, believe it or not. I know, and that right? is a uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> nice. Oh, <laughs> mate, it is a pleasure to have you on. And, mate, um, as as Mark was just saying, these are the, like, this is the big leagues, right? This is D-Day, and uh, not, you know, this is expanding the already expansive... Uh, amount of material that warlords put out on that particular you know campaign and all of a sudden you guys have a whole new corner of this to uh to to lay out and this is your first crack at uh you know bolt action rules creation in a book it's pretty exciting right yeah really exciting um I've been meaning to get really involved in stuff. I think the first thing I ever did was I wrote an article for WWPD back in the day. That's right. And um, got talking to Mark and just like, do you want to come on board? I'm like, hell yes. Yes, yes, I do. Um, I think the the big one, like you said, it's such a big subject and it's such an important one. It's one that we couldn't get wrong, as in like the historical facts and the unit facts. Mm -hmm. Because... Your more unknown stuff, 
Like if you could do some random obscure operation that only probably one in a million people knows anything about, then you can get away with being wrong. It sounds wrong, but you can, you know, no one's going to pick you up on it. Yeah. Whereas this, we need to nail it um, or people will pick you up on it. Yes. Yes. It seems to be one of those things. I'm literally looking at my bookshelf and there are four D-Day books on the first shelf alone you know, and those aren't bolt action books. Those are just books about history. And I've read all of them. And when you start talking about uh, D-Day, it's the, I mean, thanks to Band of Brothers, thanks to, you know, all the World War II iconic movies that we've seen, the whole D-Day conflict is one of those that we are all, you know, intimately uh, familiar with. Everyone's got an opinion of it. Everyone knows all about it. And so you got to kind of, you know, stretch your wings a little bit if you're going to do something original. But having looked at this book, I think you guys have done a great job of digging into some parts, and I've said this already, that isn't what we've seen before. Now, Mark, let's let's start here. We have already had a D-Day book. This is the D-Day book part two, so to speak. Um, this is the British and Canadian sectors book. What makes this book different than the previous D-Day book that Warlord put out last year? Right. Okay. Um, that book which came out last year was the first in a series of three. So that right. was always the uh, the long-term plan. Mm -hmm. So the idea is the first book that everyone's already seen is the 6th of June. Um, it is D-Day itself. D-Day in the context of these next two books is just to kind of bring it together as a series. Um, so it's just to say that, you know, these three books come hand in hand. If you were to look at this as an isolated book, it's not D-Day. This is the Normandy campaign. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so this is looking at the Brit two British beaches and the one Canadian beach. The book starts uh, basically after the landing craft have hit later on in the day after the troops have got off the beaches and are starting to fight inland and then pushes uh, all the way through uh, basically to the end of the Normandy campaign. And it sort of starts then with uh, the Villers Bocage and the race for Khan then. Am I understanding that right? Um, even a little bit before that, um, mm. the, the, the first scenario, cause I mean, if, for anyone who's, uh, bought any of these books before, they'll know it, it is based around the narrative of the scenarios. Mm. Uh, the, the, the first scenario is about fighting in the coastal villages. So it's about, uh, when British and Canadian troops have fought off their be off the beaches and we're looking at fighting in built up areas on the 6th of June itself. Um, and then after that, it's, it starts to push. Um, you know, each scenario is getting further and further away from the beachhead and further inland. Now, for some of these books, we have seen 20 plus scenarios, you know, inter interspliced with loads of history. Now, the history is in this book, but in this book, we are talking 13 scenarios. Am I reading that right? Yeah, that's right. We had 12 initially, mm -hmm. and then we kind of thought of a, a little bonus scenario and thought, uh, and, and so that, that neat dozen became a, a kind of uh, an uneven 13 because there was just one at the end where we thought, you know, this would be nice to put in there. Absolutely. But, I guess the, but let me, let me, yeah, let me the, just get there because while I can hear people in the audience saying, but why? Why half as many? Why, why not 20 plus like several other books? This is a fat book, and it is full of what bolt-action players have been wanting for a long 
time. Um, not to say that we don't get it in other books, but you get more of it in this book. Mark, tell us what, what makes up the lion's share of this book. The majority of this book is new units and new theater selectors, mm -hmm. uh, because from all of the feedback we've had, and we did quite a lot of market research with social media on this to say, what do people want? Um, and people wanted new units and new theater selectors. So we've slimmed down the scenarios to the point that there is still that historical narrative. Mm. There is still, you know, here is exactly what happened. And the, the scenarios, you know, there's, there's a, a spread of if you've literally just got a green tablecloth and some books to put under it to make some hills, you can do some of these scenarios. If you're the sort of person who is invested into some, you know, really, really bespoke different stuff, then, uh, then there's stuff, stuff that's going to suit you for that as well. Uh, so, so it's a spread of scenarios, but we have absolutely majored on new units and new theater selectors. Yeah, man, it is pretty epic. And that's why Gaz is with us today, because you have both tackled different selectors, different units, um, different parts, um, historically, um, how to take the units and the conflicts out of historical context and to put them onto the bolt action tabletop, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think I come along, I mean, my historical knowledge is pretty up there. I, I'm not going to lie. It's pretty decent, uh, in certain areas, Mark has definitely got the flair for writing the historical narrative part. That's not to say I didn't write any of my own. I did right. a, a chunk. Um, but for me, I come along more of the... Um, I'm bringing along that... How do you put it without sounding bad? The tournament perspective, um, mm -hmm. especially the more competitive play side, because I, I do love my competitive play. And anyone that's been to any of my tournaments that I've ran will understand that as well. Um, so the thing we're bringing together that works really well is that it's not to say that Mark doesn't have game skill or whatever, doesn't know how to play the game, but I'm coming at it from a different perspective. Exactly. And it's worked so perfectly that we've both sort of looked at each other's narratives and looked at each other's units and we can both offer tweaks and changes to, uh, either vice versa, um, to, to get good balance on everything absolutely yeah it, it's ran on rails in that respect so I've, I've been really happy with it in, in that um i'll for example write up a new unit show it to gaz and he'll look at it and say here is uh even though it's historically accurate from a tournament player's point of view if i wanted to abuse this unit here is how i could uh, and so we rewrite it and make it more airtight uh, yeah. Whereas Gaz would sometimes bring a new unit to me, which uh, is perfectly balanced. And I'd say, yeah, but from a historical point of view, right. here is how it is misleading that uh, it could potentially be seen as it doesn't really fit in with the narrative of what this unit did in the Second World War. And so we, we re rewrite it and we tweak it subtly. And, and between the two of us, that's how we've kind of ended up with what we've got. Nice. And for those of you who are narrative players off in the background, I can hear a couple of people grumbling saying, oh, tournaments, uh, like, wh why would you want that? And, you know, I don't want that in my historical book. Well, think about this. Um, if you are playing a game with a friend and you both have equal size forces and you're looking to play out a scenario in the book, you want those units to be leveled. You want them to be balanced. You want to have, you want to play out the conflict and have a good time and have it reflect the, the, the conflict that you're trying to play. You don't want one side to have something that isn't, you know, is, is significantly more quote unquote powerful than the other. Um, and, and by having that, that critical eye and that balance, you're able to have both 
history and fun on the tabletop together, holding hands. It's great. And I, I love this partnership that you guys have brought to this project. I think it is, um, it is just a really, it, it just brings such a fresh perspective. Um, not that I don't like the other bolt action campaign books. Clearly I do. I love them. Um, and I own them all. Uh, but this is just a great book and I love what you guys have done with it. And I'm looking forward to, uh, really digging in. So let, let's start out. Now we could go exhaustively through all the scenarios top to bottom. And on this podcast, we have done that with some campaign books, but as this campaign book has that focus, it also has the other. And I want to give, I want to give some time to all of the elements that make this book great. So let's start with some of the historical perspective. Let's talk about some of the scenarios. Now, there are 13. Um, Mark, let's start out. Is there any in there in particular that you're particularly proud of, you really like the look of? Something that players can look forward to opening when they hear about this um, that might give them a, a fun bolt action experience on the tabletop yeah um i think the middle of the uh, of the run of scenarios is what is what loops out to me particularly a lot of the stuff around khan because mm -hmm. i think if you if you're writing about the anglo-canadian sector of the normandy campaign khan is is huge it is an absolute center point um, and so the, the street fighting element of that, I, I really like. I think nice. playing those uh, the, those scenarios where it is based around the uh, the urban side of things, uh, I really enjoy. If I were to pick one, um, it would be the Battle of Duva radar station, uh, purely because of the forces involved. Um, because this is basically pitting Royal Marine commandos against Luftwaffe field regiment. So it's so for the Luftwaffe, it's. Uh, it's something very new for the German players. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very, very different way of having to fight on the tabletop because instead of having a, a well, you know, well balanced in terms of your experience levels, it is here. You are going to outnumber your opponent by a country mile <laughs> with a lot of inexperienced stuff. Uh, and um, and from the commandos as well, it's because this is introducing a new way of playing the commandos. Um, which is now, which as I'm sure we'll come on to later, so I won't, yes. I won't major on it now. Um, when you pick a commando force, you pick whether it's going to be an army commando or a Royal Marine commando force, because they're both organized and, and set up in different ways. Uh, so this is introducing the players to say that here's, uh, because Duvra was, was carried out by Royal Marine commandos, that here, here's how a Royal Marine commando force is used, along with stuff like uh, Churchill AVREs and uh, mine flails and all that good stuff for fighting your way to the Luftwaffe fortifications. So yeah, that would be my favorite one, I think. That's awesome. And yeah, again, you're, I, just that you're getting that variety between the commando types on the tabletop and a new way to play Germans, so cool. Love it. Um, now, Gaz, I know you have a favorite, um, and I hear you might have a funny voice to put on, but I'm not sure we're allowed to do it on the podcast. Um, <laughs> Are we stereotype what's what's your demographic in germany like yeah let's let's not go stereotype with the accents but let's let's talk <laughs> about whitman and killing him let's let's talk about the hunt talk to us yeah so we didn't and this is an important thing to know to, to know we didn't put in the scenario for villa bocage mm -hmm. and whitman just literally destroying helpless british armored column because let's be honest 
we we as a British nation didn't fight back particularly well at that point. We went after him. However, he just ripped through an entire British column. Okay, doesn't particularly sound like a fun game to play. So instead, uh, I wrote the scenario, which I, I've had a game of it on a mahoosive table. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the Kill the Black Baron. So basically, you've got the... Um, the British and the Canadians, two different armoured uh, divisions going after Vitman and all his tiger buddies. So um, this scenario, you've got two ways of playing it. You can play it, if you're playing it in your, your limited space, you can play it on a six by four and you've got a couple of tigers versus some fireflies and some Shermans and some Cromwells. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I, uh, I quite like large games. Um, I often, once a year, um, COVID withstanding, mm-hmm. uh, go down to War Games Foundry uh, in, in Newark, and mm-hmm. they've got a massive table. And we have this huge game every every year, you know, nice. 8,000 points. Off. And um, I, wanted to, I wanted to have a feel for a proper armoured game, you know, not on top of each other straight away. So right. the, the game's set on a, I think it's a 12 by eight table. <laughs> um, and it involves just, I think up to from top of memory, it involves up to eight tigers, including the Vitman special character who is just horrendous. Like yeah. he is nasty. Um, and basically it could be a three player game. So you can have one guy playing Canadian, one guy playing British, one guy playing German. And the end goal is to take the, the allies to take out as many tigers, including Vitman, as they can. And uh, the, the Vitman side have got to get lengthways across the table, which is basically what happened when he was ambushed. Um, and that's it. It's just it's just a pure out and out tigers versus allies game. No infantry, no anti-tank guns, just tanks. Brilliant. Oh, that must be a, a spectacle to see on such a large table as well. Yeah, and you know what? It, it doesn't require a lot of terrain, which is cool because mm-hmm. you know if you've got a twelve by eight board, yeah, um, it's really difficult to fill anyway. But I think the big thing is, um, I want to give out. So it's just a, more of a shout out to my mate James Dyer, who loves his big cats, like a lot of people in the community. They mm-hmm. love their big tanks and never get to use them, right? As someone who uh, has painted many a, a big cat over the years, I uh, I love what you're doing there. It's great. <laughs> well, I can talk about big cats all day, but uh, that won't be giving with the audience what they want, which is the new hotness. Shall we talk a little bit about what we see in this book? Mark, what are some of the... I mean, we've already talked about the RAF. We've talked about... Um, the new commandos. We've talked about there being new units. We've talked about Canadians. We've talked about the Luftwaffe. We've talked about the the twelfth SS. Where do you where do we start with this? Because that isn't even getting into everything that's in this book. Um, if you were to give an elevator speech to someone who was looking to pick up this book. Um, what sort of things could they, should they look forward to seeing in this book um, that would get them excited? Right. Um, I think I'd start with the conventional army units because mm-hmm. if you're looking at something like the Normandy campaign, um, yeah, th- th- there are lots of specialist units there. There's lots of real kind of fringe elements with real exciting, unique um, uh, parts to them. 
but the majority of the fighting was carried out by conventional army units. So we didn't want to neglect that. So uh, to start with, I mean, way back in Battle of the Bulge, I did a um, American Army anti-tank reinforced platoon, Mm -hmm. which is just saying, you know, if you were on the defensive and had tanks rushing towards you, that would maybe be the core of that segment of the defences. So I wanted to kind of build on that. So I wrote, so for example, for the British Army, there's now uh, an anti-tank reinforced platoon, mortar reinforced platoon, machine gun reinforced platoon, uh, Royal Artillery Gun Troop, uh, and a self-propelled artillery platoon. So there's there's lots of different ways of saying, instead of having a core based around an infantry platoon, uh, here's what my core is going to be, and then bolt stuff on and around that. Uh, we've then got armored divisions, which is wor- worth um, a chat in itself, really, because that's uh, that, that's that, that's bigger. That's a much bigger section. Um, what, the f- from the German side of it, um, again, we've got uh, elements of uh, of their different. Um, I'm scrolling through the book here. Uh, the Luftwaffe side of things we've already spoken about. The SS we're going to come on to. Um, but also we've got the, the sort of static division remnants, which mm. the D-Day book, the first one, had already got static divisions. And, and this was more after the defences crumbled in the early rounds of the 6th of June. These, right. There were still you know, hundreds of troops who were falling back and doing a layered defence on the way back. Uh, so it's about them. And then Panzerlaire as well, uh, mm. we have done with its own special rules based around their rather elite uh, and nature and also the the access to the equipment they had as well so yeah quite a lot of stuff in that regard before we even go on to the the two biggish sections from the allied side of it which are the commandos in the canadian army that's right now when you're going through these um a lot of these units that you're describing you've provided selectors so the people can can run historical lists but um you've actually given but it's it's more than just taking a selector and saying these are the units you can take versus these are the units you can't. Oftentimes, these have uh, some special rules that actually give those particular selectors, those forces, um, a little extra flavor beyond... Um, you know, something you get out of the back of a reinforced platoon out of a theater selector in uh, an Armies of book, correct? Yeah, so I, I I think I went into this, and I think this is one of the very, very early points I made to Mark when we sort of, we had long phone calls about where are we going with this book. Um, I really like flavour. Like you said, I don't want to have, I don't want to look at a theatre selector and go, well, I can just do that with the reinforced platoons. Right. I love the idea of it having its own, like you said, flavor. I think Brian did such a good job in Budapest right. with that sort of thing. So I'm not saying all of the new units and theater selectors have a million different rules, but right. I think the vast majority of them do. Yeah. And it will yeah, so- play different. Yeah, and they might be subtle. It just says, here's something which is um, just means it'll play ever so slightly differently. Panzer Lair, for example, has got one which is going to uh, hamstring you a bit and one which is going to benefit you a bit. It's not uh, going to make it uh, you know, as hugely different as, say, 12th SS, which you're almost relearning how you're going to play bolt action if you're going in with 12th SS, mm-hmm. and this, it is so different. 
uh, but Panzalaire is just basically, you know, you are going to get, you, you're going to be paying a lot because you are penalized in how many units have to be veteran. But also because of the elite leadership side of it, Panzalaire officers have got a, uh, a special rule for discarding pin markers in a slightly more advantageous way, which uh, just means you've got that edge. So you, you, you've kind of paid the penalty in one area and get a slight benefit, which isn't going to be a game breaker in another area. Nice. I like that, that you're just giving it that little extra tweak that makes it a little bit different, um, which really does. And it's those little changes that allow players to really lean into their particular play style on the on the tabletop and or just the character of the force that they want to represent on the table, which is cool. Well, guys, this, as we mentioned with the scenarios, this could be an exhaustive conversation if we start digging into all of these. So, I mean, clearly we're not going to hit all the the new units clearly we're not going to hit all of the the selectors or you know all of even the armies but let's get into some of the big hitters here because there's a lot to get into and there's you know we should actually get into some solid crunchy detail about what's in this book and what people can look forward to gaz why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about how the 12th ss is so different from playing your usual german army yeah, so this one's a really interesting take. Now, there is already a 12th SS um, selector uh, in Battleground Europe. There is. Uh, and basically what we put in here is, there's a little side note just underneath the main section saying, this is an alternative set of rules to that set of rules. Nice. Um, I really liked the idea of them. Now, these were historically despicable people uh, that were sort of forcing younger uh, soldiers to do horrific things. However, we'll take that aside. This is a war game. These guys operated so differently to a lot of the um, German army or even the uh, the other SS in Normandy because they were so young and so infused with rhetoric. They sort of went a bit mad. Um, it's a bit of an understatement, but they, they were really fanatical um so we tried to sort of i tried to sort of portray that in the list now the best way of describing how i think this list is going to work i said this on one of the uh, i think it was the, the official warlord discord server someone was asking about it without going into too much detail to them i sort of put that i think this is gonna i think this army is gonna work a lot like fourth edition 40k orcs um <laughs> right on the, these guys, this army is going to work really differently. So I'll, I'll go into why I think it's going to work really differently. They've got two really important rules. Now, they get the, the start of the section will tell you how these are different to the normal German list. Right. Now, you can only play these guys with the theater selectors that are provided uh, in the section, of which I think there's four of them. So there's mm -hmm. some really good ones. In there. Um how you play them. So they've got two really important rules. The first is angriff, which in German means attack. Um, if these guys fail an order check for whatever reason, they do not go down. Instead, they run towards the nearest visible enemy unit. Crazy. <laughs> so if this means that they contact them, it means they charge. So you could potentially have, you know, you get your, you, you get your, failed order test and they'll literally just go headlong towards the nearest enemy mm. um which can make some really interesting mechanics where especially if you've got to be really careful that they don't just leg your entire force across the board mm. um 
the the next rule to team up with this uh to show sort of how mad these guys were at just charging enemy positions without any sort of um any regard for their own safety is that they've got a, a, a rule called suicidal fanaticism so these guys get fanatics for free yay yay however it, it kind of comes at a cost. <laughs> i would say however and there is a big however yes <laughs> yeah just 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 a smidge um Unfortunately, because these guys have got no regard for their own safety, they get injured uh, slightly easier. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, any anyone with this rule is is wounded uh, or damaged on one better than they normally would be. So if you're inexperienced, you're getting killed on two plus. But you know, you're getting you're getting you're getting fanatic for free, so it's fine. They're not going anywhere; they're just dying easier. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Because, I mean, it, it would have been very easy for you to add uh, Fnatic and then called it a day. It could have been very yeah. easy for you to to play around with the rules and end up with a slightly German-flavored Japanese army. Because, of course, they have uh, Bonsai Charge and they have Fnatic already. But just with the slight tweaks, just those national rules to the national rules that already exist for the Germans, you get something that is as you say represents the unit on the tabletop but if tonally plays very different doesn't it oh yeah extremely i had a couple of guys play test that were like oh it did not end well for me i'm like yeah but you did you play it in the same manner you'd play your normal german army yes well that's the mindset you've got to change uh, exactly. and you've really got to and I, I like that i like obviously i like it i wrote it but um i like the idea of challenging a player to try something different exactly and that is, um, it's giving us new ways to play the game, which is fantastic. And I mean, without going too much into it, because there's a few new units in here. Um, I think the biggest ones here um, is the introduction of something the Germans don't have. And that is an inexperienced officer. Yes. So you can take a specific SS officer. Um, now I'll, I'll, Mark did the uh, the chunk of the work on these new officers available to the the SS. Uh, one is a normal officer, and the other one's the uh, the support officer. But I'll, I'll uh, Mark, how did you come about with these um, making these different? Uh, the the officer, as as it is in the standard bolt action rules and in in any of the army books, uh, you could more accurately describe as an infantry officer. Um, So an individual will pop out of officer training, will be commissioned with generic officer skills before then going on to do specialist courses in their branch. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at infantry officers. So the support officer, first off, isn't an infantry officer. The support officer is, well, it's a bit more complicated than that. It could be. Uh, but for the sake of simplicity, it, it is someone who perhaps is an artillery officer attached to a gun troop. It could be a infantry officer who has now been taken away from the rifle platoons and has been put in char- charge of a machine gun section or a mortar section. So it's someone who is more specialized in support weapons than rifle platoons. Nice. And so therefore their special rules are tweaked to kind of uh, to, to reflect that. They're not as good at, uh, you, you know, uh, get chivy in the the the, uh, the rifle platoons forwards but are better with with fixed weapons uh the which was the other one we we're talking about was the 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 ss no, officer yeah, yeah to, to, to give our our, our st- 
standard shout out to to Karsten in Germany. We have our man in Germany who uh, is a curator at a military museum in Berlin and has access to every document you would ever want and understands bolt action. So he is unique and an absolute goldmine. And the information he found out for us was that basically, uh, yes, totally agree with the Armies of Germany book that the um, standard German officer training was substantial. These guys had a lot of training. But that is not true when it comes to the SS. Uh, It was about indoctrination. It was about finding an individual who, uh, how does one put it, maybe isn't uh, the sharpest tool in the box, but will do what they're told and will relay those orders. So as a result, the academic requirements were a lot lower and uh, the training pipeline was a lot shorter. Therefore, you could justifiably say that a, a an SS officer, yes, inexperienced, is definitely an option for that. So that's that's what we went with. Nice. Yeah. Again, and totally now, different flavor, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Different flavor adds different dynamics to the German army. But there's, there's, sorry, there was one rule I forgot to sort of allude to with this that is it's sort of a give and take with this army. Yes, they might go mad and start charging across the table and getting killed. However, there is sort of a fix to it. You can pay, you have to pay for it though, it's a tax. (laughs) You can buy buy a veteran, one of these um, new SS officers, you can buy a veteran veteran captain or major and it basically negates the rule uh, that gets them killed and they just get fanatic instead. So there is ways around it and it's going to be really interesting to see how people build the lists and I can't wait to see it. Absolutely. And again, it's, yeah, you're getting to use some of the the sweet models that uh, Warlord makes and you get to use them in a slightly different way. If you have a painted German army or a painted SS army, this is the perfect opportunity for you to, if you, if you've been playing the same army for years and years and you want to try it in a slightly different way. The great thing about bolt action is often those infantry are universal and you can use them in different forces. Now's your chance to try something completely different. Now you're not going to have the assault rifles that you usually get. Um, but many of us have many German riflemen floating around and this list sounds very interesting to try out on the tabletop. Yeah, definitely. I'll say there's, I think there's four theater selectors that you can use these guys with. So Mm -hmm. we're not sort of narrowing it. There's, you know, plenty of scope and there's an armored one standard sort of panzer grenadier one that allows you some, some variants in units. And then Mark's written a couple of his weapons ones. So you've got that sort of, you know, a support platoon rather than just an infantry platoon. So I'm I'm genuinely looking forward to seeing someone play this force. And to be honest with you, as soon as I've moved house, I'd like to build one myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? It's you know, gets you gets the old gears turning. Uh well let's let's talk commandos. Uh, Mark, were you gonna talk to us about some of the great new commando stuff that's in this book? Because there is a lot. I could go on and on and on about <laughs> the size of it. Yeah, the, the uh Nice. Why, why commandos? Um, two reasons came out of this in terms of why, why did, uh, I want to put commandos in this book. One is I wrote uh, the 4-7 Royal Marine Commando list years ago, mm-hmm. and I'm still uh, have, having people get in touch uh, and kind of give me feedback on it and say that, you know, they've had successes in tournaments and, and so on and so forth. And it's, it seems to be really popular, um, more popular than I ever thought it would be. So, so that was kind of that was cool. Um, so I thought, well, I can do better. That was the first project I ever did in bolt action. And with, you know, uh, four books down the line and more experience, mm-hmm. I can do a better job. 
Then uh, we went on Bolt Action's um, Facebook page. We put a community vote out. We gave a good couple of weeks on that, and we had hundreds of people come back. And we, we put a whole load of things down to say, what do you want in this book? We are writing this book. Shouldn't It's not about what the authors want. It's about what the community wants. So you tell us, what should we fill this book with? And they said, first off, units and fitter selectors. Fine, we've done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and by far and away, commandos and Canadians came out top. So we majored on, on those sections. Um, I think, yeah, the Judean People's Front was, was up there on the list of uh, the, the comedy votes, but uh, I think I started that, so sorry about that. <laughs> uh, commandos, what, what, what's, uh, what's different about this? Okay, first off, let's start with the negatives. Um, all of those British rules, those uh, bombardment, artillery support, mm-hmm. all of that good stuff on uh, in Armies of Great Britain, it's gone. You've lost it if you're going for a commando uh, because it's, it's not the nature right. of their operations. Right, it didn't operations. match. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could argue that there was there was certainly naval gunfire support at things like Normandy, but in general, if you're using a commando list, you are not supported by, uh, you know, app, you know, lines of artillery behind you from the Royal Artillery. It's right. just it's not a thing. So that's gone. What are you getting instead of it? Yes. Okay. Uh, first off, um, the uh, the national characteristic rules. Um, you're uh, you're getting two instead of one, but it's fixed what one of those is. So you still get to pick a British national characteristic. Okay. Uh, by and large, you have to take Tuffer's Boots as your second one, mm-hmm. unless you're going for a, um, a number 10 inter-allied commando, which was Dutch, French, Polish, Belgian, Norwegian, uh, all of these soldiers who had made it across to Britain after the invasion of the Lowlands. And through the next few years... Uh, had ended up making it into the inter-allied uh, commando units. So instead, they get the vengeance rule in addition to one you pick yourself. Nice. You've then got uh, the facts, commando subsections, um, the proportion of NCOs. If you look at a standard British rifle section, uh, 10 men led by a corporal, assisted mm-hmm. by a lance corporal, that's it. Um, there were, depending on what time, what theatre and what part of the uh, war you were looking at, commandos might have as many as half of the guys in a section were lance corporals and corporals and sergeants. So therefore, similar to what the Germans have got, if your NCO gets killed, with a commando unit, you roll a dice on a uh, on a on a only on a roll of a one or a two. Do you treat that unit as if it's lost its NCO? Cool. Because uh, otherwise, there's, there's plenty of experience to absorb it and carry on. But there's more, and that's not, uh, which we'll come on to when we look at the units. Um, and in addition to that, you've then got the fact that again, if you look at a standard British rifle section, a submachine gun. So by this point of the war, a Sten gun would be normally provided to the uh, section leader, to the corporal. And the rest of have rifles and stuff to support the Bren gun. Um, commandos had a ton of submachine guns attached to them at, uh, at troop level, way more. And they were normally used to support, to support small team operations as well as the assault subsections. So as a result now, with what you see is what you get, commando team weapons. Um, if you give the loader a submachine gun, he has got a submachine gun. So That's if cool. you're in a point now where... It, where you're there with a Piat and you just think, I am not in a position to fire a Piat, what a sniper rifle, whatever it might be, you can let rip with a couple of submachine guns instead. So there's quite a bit going on, and that is page one before we even then start going into the new units. <laughs> so so cool. uh, I mean, 
headquarter unit to start off with officers. Um, so the commandos were set up in 1940 as a, as a sort of specialist unit within the British Army. 1942 was when Royal Marine commandos, because uh, the Royal Marines are part of the naval service. They're not mm -hmm. part of the army. Um, so they had their own, and there was a lot of rivalry between these two. Because the army commandos were quite rightly saying, uh, marine commandos are not all volunteers. Therefore, that, uh, you know, some of these guys, the guys have been pressed into it. So, therefore, they don't have that same elite volunteer nature that the army commandos do. Whereas the marine commandos were saying, commandos are to assault from the sea. It is a maritime strike force. That is, that is the job of a royal marine, not an army soldier. So, the two weren't quite getting on. Uh, so as a result, uh, Marine officers and Army commando officers have got um, different setups. The rules are there or thereabouts, but in terms of how many men you get in each unit and what they're equipped with uh, is different. Uh, you've then got the Heavy Weapons Officer, which is kind of a support officer, Commando Artillery Forward Observer, Intelligence Officer, Chaplain, uh, all of this stuff in the officer section of it, where they've got the commando special rules um, before we then go into the teams. The teams are then uh, split into uh, early mid-war commando subsections, and then by the time we get to late war, you've got army and marine uh, subsections and Royal Navy commando subsections because the Royal Navy uh, trained beach parties uh, who were commando trained, so you can field those as well. Uh, and we go to engineers, intelligence, commando motorcycle detachments, sniper teams, uh, anti-tank, flamethrower, mortars, uh, machine gun teams, all of this stuff, uh, which... Uh, some of it is just adding behind enemy lines and tough fighter, but some of it is um, there's a bit more to it because of the way historically these units were organized. Um, so we've got some new characters after that. And then you go into the theater selectors, which, again, some of these have got their own special rules, mm -hmm. um, uh, which may, for example, if you're using the New Guinea raiding rules, will give you things like... Uh, access to Delisle carbines, so silenced weapons for doing raid scenarios. Um, you've got the penalty of, except for transports and tows, everyone's got to be veteran because everyone in the commando unit has to have been commando trained. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and we get, it basically goes through early raids, uh, mid-war, uh, and then into the stuff around Normandy. Uh, the support uh, stuff again, uh, and then also for when we get to the late war, um, the tank destroyers, self-propelled artillery, etc., and transports and tows, it splits off into two separate sections. So you can also uh, represent a Burma campaign. Uh, oh, like brilliant. Troop. So um, it's tailored. So if you do you want to do late war, you, you basically, if you take the late war selector, you're kind of going, um, first off, do I want to be a Marine or Army? Second off, do I want this to represent Europe or, or the Far East? Um, and uh, it gives you the options to kind of tailor it around that and give it a feel for that. And that's really special because this book is, you know, nominally or supposed to be about D-Day, and yet within it, you're giving people the opportunity to play, you know, commandos in completely different theaters of the war. Yeah, because we thought, when is commandos going to get done really um yeah, obviously commandos are in armies of great britain and mm -hmm. here's the units and i think the first thing which stood out to me would be uh you do a commander unit it allows you to take an officer first line is i'm taking an officer yet that officer is effectively not commando trained because he doesn't get the commando special rules 
which is odd because uh, the physical requirements for commando officers were even further in excess of the uh, the other ranks. So these should be um, at the very least having those special rules. So we made that as a as a unit um, and then started to do kind of everything else. Even commando chaplains had to be Green Beret qualified. They had to go through and make it through that selection. The medics had to as well, all of them. There was, there was no time for passengers or baggage, as the special rule says. So, yeah, we're, we're kind of going through all of that. And then I, when I mentioned to, to Warlord about it and said, yeah, OK, we've got Normandy covered, but for a few extra pages, we could do the whole war pretty much. You know, nice. there's a few gaps, there's a few commando operations which we haven't covered, but this will allow you to do everything from raiding the French coast in 1940 through to Mediterranean um, operations through to Burma. So it, it'll, it'll cover the lot. And for anyone who's used the 4-7 commando list and thinks, uh, you know, I kind of liked that, this list will allow you... To, uh, I, there's, there's not many scenarios where whatever you've got in the 4-7 commando list, you, you, you're going to be able to cover it in this. Yeah, you're going to lose your free artillery observer. But by and large, uh, there's, there's nothing else. If you're really dead set on this is my 4-7 commando list, this will allow you to do it and more. That's so cool. The important thing as well is that I think the way it's approached is it's not a set of theatre selectors, new units. It's almost an army of its own. It's almost an armies of commandos, which is, I think, what we initially tried to go for, wasn't it, Mark? We, we sort yeah, of went, yeah. we, want we want them to be an army in their own right that just happens to be British. Yeah, we, I mean, Battle of the Bulge, we did the late war French, mm -hmm. uh, and then New, New Guinea, we had Australia, and it's, it's, it's kind of, I think it's always nice in, in these books that if you can, if you can make it fit, try and get something really new, instead of just, here's some selectors, which is going to slightly tweak your options, mm -hmm. it's here's some selectors with some, some special, some character, special rules to them, and Here's an army. Here's something really new you can do. And in this, we've got, you know, we've got two. We've got uh, the commandos and the Canadians. Which, uh, I guess we can talk about in a second. I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to drop the mic and hand over to Gaz for a bit because I've been talking too much. So I think <laughs> well, out, of, out of the stuff, I, I want to hear about the RAF from Gaz. <laughs> so uh, I have got a slight bias in all things Air Force. Slight. And. Slight. slight, yeah, just Tiny. just just a little, little bit, smidge, little bit. Smidge and a um, people tend to think, oh, the air force don't fight. Um, uh, Q laughing army, marines, even mm -hmm. navy, um, even so, though, yeah. <laughs> so second world war, let's put it into context second world war, RAF, Luftwaffe, yes, um, and even other nations, they did fight and they fought a lot. Um, I mean, look at prime example. There's no, uh, there's no specifics in here for the um, Fallschirmjäger, but the Fallschirmjäger were part of the Luftwaffe, hence they were Air Force. Um, I have put my ode to Air Forces fighting on the ground uh, in this book, and we've got two things. We'll start with the uh, the easier one to cover, which is the uh, Royal Air Force Regiment. Um, so the RAF Regiment was formed in 1942. Um, it was sort of the idea was a force that could protect uh, airfields or air operations on the ground. Um, the problem was the same sort of theory as what happened with the Luftwaffe Field Division. The air forces went, oh, we want these fighting men. And then the army sort of went, hang on a second, you're taking these really fit fighting men 
and putting them in your little operation to defend an airfield that's probably not going to get attacked. So the army uh, went and nabbed a load of the actual good fighting men from the RAF and went, nope, we're having them, put them in you know, guards, regiments, etc. So the RAF regiment I've written in here, I could write loads more because I, I loved researching this. Um, big shout out to the RAF Regiment Heritage Centre as well. They were a massive help in getting actual source material for this. Um, but the one I find the most exciting because I've got a soft spot as well for armoured cars. I don't know why. I just really love them. Mm -hmm. I really love the idea of just cars that have a bit of armour and a gun just tearing across the battlefield. Um, I think Brad fills me with the auto-Sahariana on that yes, point. Yes, sir. You know I love uh, <laughs> living fast and dying young. That's how I do it on the yeah. tabletop. So I put in the one list in here, which is uh, the RAF Regiment Armoured Car Squadron. So these guys were going forward of the lines and doing the reconnaissance-style thing. So it's a reconnaissance armored car squadron um, list. It's sort of it's narrowed in what you can take in it because that was specifically what they actually had. And I think this is the thing: is finding that balance where you've got the original table of equipment and order of battle and putting it into a list that works. So with these guys, they didn't have a lot, so I've tried to make the rules a bit better for them. Um, they get a free reconnaissance move at the start of the turn, uh, start of the game, should I say, so they can sort of start going at them. And also, I know people don't tend to like airstrikes. However, this is what these guys did. They called in forward um, airstrikes. So you can use your air observer. Um, basically, you can call in uh, airstrikes using any of the armored cars for line of sight, which is pretty fun. Um so, yeah, that's a little ode to the RAF regiment there with the armoured nice. cars. Um, now, the Luftwaffe Field Division. I There's a bit of a cult following, I think, on, on, on Bolt Action Community for these guys. Um, I've seen quite a few people asking, you know, oh, what shall I use for my Luftwaffe Field Division? Warlord have got a beautiful box set out for oh, them. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, it's really nice. And... As I've demonstrated as well, you can use the bolt action, uh, the Warlord plastics to make your own Luftwaffe field division. Um, they're really easy because they have sort of a mishmash of equipment. Um, now, the list. This is a really fun one that I, I have got a lot of love for and I've got a, a few of my play testers out there have been asking me over and over, When's this book coming out? I'm like, I can't tell you. I'm sorry, I can't tell you. Now it's on pre-order, I can. Mm -hmm. But, like, I really want to play this list. I really want to play it. It's so much fun. It gives you, at first glance, you think, oh, God, what? why? Why would anybody take this? They don't really get uh, many special rules. So you get your German special rules, except for your officers are terrible. Uh, your NCOs don't get the extra rules. And you can never include veteran units in this army anywhere at all. Um, however, they do get some free defences. Uh, basically, these guys were used on the defensive a lot because they were terrible troops. Uh, they weren't used in offence. Um, there were some operations on the Eastern Front when they first established the Luftwaffe Field Division. And they put them into attack and realised very soon that was a bad idea. Um, they <laughs> lost thousands. So 
they get the prepared defences. They get 100 points of free defences. Um, and these are specifically taken from this book. So we put a list of defences in. So you can get yourself some bunkers, some trenches, some barbed wire, minefields um, to really sort of bolster their rubbishness. <laughs> nice. Now, now, that's great because, again, it gives – I mean, this is a totally different way to play that army – that is not your standard bolt action game. You want to play with some emplacements? How many times does that happen? It's when you're you know, an Italian player and you're on the defensive and you happen to roll that and happens to come up with the scenario. But with this particular army, you can actually buy it as part of your army list and then try and to play like that. It, again, is, is very different from your standard bolt action straight out of the armies of book. Yeah, 100%. And I think as Mark alluded to earlier... This is a very different way of playing Germans again. Um, this almost, you, you're going to outnumber your opponent. If you're not, you're doing something wrong. Uh, or they're playing Russians, either one. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the whole idea with this is it is a German horde. It is specifically designed to be the German horde. You're going to get a lot of units in here. Um, and as I said earlier, you can use the plastic kits to make them as well. Um I'll just sort of skim over a couple of the, the, the... There's a lot of units in here. There is a lot of new units. And you can only take these units, for the most part, in the selectors provided, um, which, again, are very different in the way they play. You've got, like, a static defense one, and you've got a Luftwaffe Field Division one. There is also one for... Another thing with cult followings, I don't know what it is. The 88. There is a, an 88 platoon in here. You can take a platoon of just 88s if you want. <laughs> Yeah, that would make for a different game. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a couple of the new units, there is, again, an inexperienced officer in there. So you can take an inexperienced officer. They don't get the benefits from the German officers because they were terrible, again. Mm -hmm. So it's just a nice cheap officer. A few new units like medics, that sort of stuff. Um, you've also then got um, like defense squads, so really dirt cheap. These guys were like cooks and mechanics and... Basically, anyone fighting on the air, anyone on the airfield, and it was sort of brought under attack. These guys were like, "Yo, chef, grab a rifle. You're now defending the house." <laughs> um, so they're really, really terrible. Um, there's a couple of other nice units in there, but I think the one, the two things here I really want to talk about, or three things, should I say? Sorry. There's a couple of new vehicles in here. Um, the first of which uh, is one of my favourite all-time tanks. That is the Renault FT-17. Everybody's favorite cheap machine gun. Yes. What is it? 35 points for a, uh, and I know we're you know, not trying to bog down in points, but how many times do you see a tank that's under 50 points? Yeah. 35 points for a pathetically slow, 7-up, fully enclosed armored machine gun. Um, I have made this available because... They were available in a lot of the backfields of German forces, especially in occupying areas. So it was widely used. Um, therefore, it's now available in the generic selector for Germans. Awesome. That is, um, that is so funny. Yes, awesome. However, again, I've got to bring in the historical realism in here and negate some potential cheese. You can't use the Hitler's buzzsaw with this tank. They never put MG42s in Renault FT-17s. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, the 
Next one I want to talk about is two more that and we can move on from then. Is the oh god. Um, anyone good at German pronunciation here? Because I'm going to probably murder this. This is not the right podcast for that. Have fun. Oh, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to this. This should be good. Yes, I'm, I'm right. sitting on the edge of my chair. Have a go. <laughs> the Termstellung. I think I nailed that. That was actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I'll go with yeah, that. If you get some German angry replies, please let me know. <laughs> and what um, does it do? Uh, so this is a, um, it's a turret. You know, like you've got the Panther term. Mm-hmm. Well, this was they had a bunch of captured FT-17s. They went, these tanks are terrible. All right, let's rip the turret off and put it in a bunker. So you can buy, you can only get it inexperienced. It's um, got effectively the same rules as the, the Panther term in that it sort of always counts as being in hardcover. And it's just an FT-17 turret that you can just sort of plunk down and go, there we go. There's my turret. Um, it's taken as a tank, uh, so it counts as a tank. And again, also can be taken in a generic selector. So if you're playing an infantry force or something along them sort of lines that you don't want to take, you're not bothered about taking a tank, you can take one of these now. Um, and it's just an FT-17 turret on top of a bunker, and it's really cheap. That's but it's awesome. not great. But if you want to build that force, if you're looking, if you're the German player and you've said, you know, I've looked up the battle, I've looked up, you know, what was actually being fielded at the time, and you see that it's it's been there, and all of a sudden in bolt action you can't take it, the number of times I've seen that as a bolt action player and gone, oh yeah, there's just that one time this thing happened, or, you know, there was a handful of them, and you're like, I really want to put that on the tabletop, but it's not in the list, so I'll find something else. You're giving people the opportunities to field those things, which is great because they actually happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it adds some variety rather than seeing the same Panzer four all the time. Although, yeah, that's sort of the idea anyway. Um, exactly. And another little gem that not a lot of people that have had a look at this book already have even noticed because they never bother. I, I'll tell you this much. People always go, oh, where's the juicy stuff? Where are the tanks? Where are the mm-hmm. infantry? And never look at the transports. Mm-hmm. So this is again. This really reflects on the the need of cheap stuff for the Germans later in the war, and the need to not always have mechanical transport. This is a horse wagon, and this isn't just a horse tow for your artillery. This is this horse wagon can carry six dudes. Awesome. It is dirt cheap. It is literally soft skins. So you're killing it on threes, and it's slow. However, you can carry six dudes in a 18-point transport. Mm-hmm. And if you're and running so, one of those lists that require everyone being a transport and you're running low on uh, points. Ah, uh, see, now this is where <laughs> – sorry to burst your bubble there, Brad, but this is where I've negated the cheese once again. Bring <laughs> it. Um, this isn't available in armored platoons. You can only <laughs> take it. this in – reinforced platoons of any sort of German nature, uh, you can't take in armoured, because can you imagine that? Like, mm-hmm. you know, all your infantry being carted round, literally carted round, whereas your tanks are zooming off. So you can't take it in armoured, you take it pretty much everywhere else. Not gonna lie, my brain went there right away. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you cheesemonger, you. <laughs> <clears throat> said most um, people. That's not yeah. usually my role on this show. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> So a couple of different uh, theater selectors to take these guys with, having multiple selections of stuff. Um, a bit of fun, really. But 
this force will be a lot of fun to play on the table. And I am hearing from the historical guys, oh, this is cool, because I've put the effort in to find out what they had, mm-hmm. what these different units did, and it's going to play really nicely for your historical, your themed players. You're just having a laugh, players. However, this force is very good at competitive play. If you play in the style of Dice Horde, or if you know what you're doing with that sort of force, this list will work very, very well. Nice. Um, it has been play tested. I'm not going to name names or anything like that because it was sort of slyly done to see if it worked. Um, we we did want to do play testing on this book, and it was one of the most important factors. And you know what? With this list, I put it forward, and the guy played six tournament games with it, and he did very well. Well, you, earlier, just in this recording, you guys mentioned armored divisions. Now, that's not something I was aware of. So what's the difference between an armored division and your more traditional Tank Wars army list? So with the armored divisions, it, it's uh, there were several of them in Normandy at the time. Um, now, these are a bit more narrowed in the list. So it's a theater selector specifically aimed at the British, Canadian, uh, and Polish armoured divisions. Cool. Um, these were sort of, you know, Shermans and Cromwells, effectively, um, with some extra stuff. It's narrowed down specifically to what you can take. So what was historically there. However, instead of um, taking your British national special rule, so, you know, rapid fire, etc., you get a armored specific one to your division. So you've got the, you know, the, the desert rats. Um, they were over in Normandy. You've got one to them. You've got the guards armored division. Again, you get one to them. The 11th armored, the black bull, you've got one to them. Um, so it, it adds a bit of flavor to how that armored division worked or the, the way in which they operated differently to the other armored divisions. It just adds a bit of extra flavour to your games, especially as I think this depends on the sort of the local area scene. But I know specifically in Britain, uh, especially England and sort of the the the, the area that I play in, um, no one cares what you take as long as you pre-warn them. So there seems to be this uh, thing out there where there's a divide in some countries where people are playing bolt action and they're playing tank wars as different things. Mm-hmm. Whereas to us, it's all one thing. It's just a different way of making an army list. Um, and that's the sort of approach I took with this list. Um, so that's sort of England. Uh, I know a few tournaments, few organized events are restricting what you can take. But I mean, how does it work in Australia? What's the feeling over there uh, regards to the sort of armored stuff? They're typically separate. It depends on the event. But yeah, I mean, you can, There, we have had tank war events. We have had, you know, armored platoon events and we've had non-armored um, platoon events where you just take usual. Uh, and there have been a few that have been mixed. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I'm in one of the com- countries that keeps them separate. But um, yeah. there are there are opportunities to play armored platoon games. Uh, I definitely have played quite a few um, and I, yeah, it's great that we're getting more different ways to play armored platoons on the tabletop. Again, slight yeah. tweaks to the rules without rewriting all the books. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, there is a Canadian armoured division Ooh. one in there as well. However, that's going to be covered more with the armies of Canada, which um, is a nice segue for Mark to do the intro to Canada. Yeah, the Canadian army, as we were saying earlier, is another substantial section in this. Uh, we had a lot of help, a lot of help from a guy over in Canada called Mark George, mm-hmm. who's ex-Canadian army. He is has worked in Canadian military museums and he's done battlefield tours in Normandy. I mean, you, you could not ask for a better qualified guy to be helping us out with this. Nice. Uh, so I guess the upshot of that is for anyone who's reading the Canadian army section and thinking, wow, this is well-researched then all kudos to Mark George. If you're reading it and thinking that's a mistake, then send your hate mail to me because I probably screwed it up in the edit. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it, it's Mark's work on, on here is, you know, it, it goes deep. I mean, first off, Army Special Rules. Um, so, again, by and large, you're getting uh, the armies of Great Britain stuff, but you're not getting a national characteristic anymore because those national characteristics don't, you know, they spread across the Commonwealth, but they don't really suit Canada. So we've got a new one, uh, which is based around the fact that the overwhelming majority of the Canadian army in World War II uh, were volunteers. It, it was only a couple of thousand out of uh, about 700,000 uh, who were, were were kind of conscripted. So most were very well-motivated volunteers who chose to be there. So as a result, um, you can upgrade regular and veteran Canadian infantry units to stubborn, paying the normal cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can also upgrade inexperienced Canadian units to green uh, for, for one point per, per soldier. Uh, and they've also got a hate the SS special rule. Um, because, again, obviously, you don't want to go into the politics of it all and, uh, and, and the really unpleasant real life stuff. But there was a long running animosity between Canadian units and the Waffen SS. Uh, and also, I mean, a lot of that stems back to uh, stuff in the First World War as well mm-hmm. um, on both sides. Uh, so so that there, there was there, there was some real bad blood, um, which, again, the, you know, is represented in the Canadian rules. So we then go into new units, which again, so it's similar. It is an armies of Canada section. It isn't just here's uh, here's some new theatre selectors and a handful of new units. It is here is a self um, kind of uh, isolated section of the book, which allows you with just this bit of the book and maybe a little bit leaning on the armies of Great Britain uh, to 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 go um, full Canadian instead of what, what players were having to do before. Exactly. which was by the armies of Great Britain but, and try and, you know, tailor it as best as possible. This is this is very Canadian. So um, Canadian officers now um, have, uh, yeah, well, I've got the, the, the can loan special rules. So the Canadian loan, um, they can take their um, special rules uh, in the selector and then you can attach that to a British army unit because a lot of Canadian officers were, were loaned to the British army mm-hmm. in certain selectors. Uh, Canadians have got their own forward observers. Um, the Canadian infantry section, uh, subtly different again. Um, the parachute section is significantly different because what you've got with the uh, the Canadian parachute uh, battalion is uh, that you can have Devil's Brigade survivors. So this uh, joint American-Canadian Devil's Brigade unit, which was uh, earlier in the war, mm-hmm. you can now have veterans from that in your parachute section, uh, which means you, you can uh, you can upgrade them a tough fighter mm-hmm. um now what have we got which is a little bit more flavorsome and different canadian tank hunter sections um so they were formed at battalion level 
1944 initially. Um, so that was taking a, uh, a group of soldiers um, and then pushing them into uh, special tank hunting units, which were basically bristling with Piats and SMGs. Uh, so you can uh, feed a limited number of those in your army. Uh, yeah. There's Canadian S Scout Recce Patrols, mm -hmm. uh, who are kind of your scout, sniper, observation specialists who have got behind enemy lines, the recon troop special rule, and can be used for intel uh, and have the intelligence special rule as well. Nice. Um, the, my favorite of a lot of them is the scout sniper team. It's only a little thing. It's only a little change, but it, it's just, it is so uniquely Canadian in the way that they uh, did their, their units um, was that uh, instead of just having, as was the case in some British army units, a sharpshooter, Someone who was, you know, particularly good and giving them a Lee Enfield with a scope on it. And, and there were specialist trained snipers as well. But these guys were trained to another level. So um, the Canadian scout sniper team now has a scout sniper and a scout spotter. So they've got the standard stuff. The spotter can take a submachine gun, uh, but they also have uh, behind enemy lines and recon troops as well. So you can do spotting uh, mm -hmm. from a additional distance. Um, what else have we got in here? The dreaded land mattress rocket launcher. Mm -hmm. We need more multiple launchers. So that's there. The very rare Churchill Mark II bracket special, uh, which was a flamethrower version of the Churchill, uh, where literally only three of them were ever made, uh, but landed at Dieppe. Uh, and then we're into sort of uh, variations on um, or what the Canadians did with tanks. Now, a lot of what go when we go into the vehicles, Canadians liked 50 caliber machine guns. Mm -hmm. So that starts to be a bit of a theme that um, the, uh, you know, the, the British didn't use them nearly as much. So when the British were taking, um, you know, uh, lend lease vehicles, things like the Sherman, uh, which were forming the backbone of uh, a lot of British tank units, um, still kind of relying on the 30 cals, whereas the Canadians, they, they like to, they like the big guns. So that, that becomes an option uh, for, for more stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, we then move into some of their more specialist things like the, um, the Ram Badger, uh, mm -hmm. the Kangaroo, all that sort of stuff. The uh, Cruiser, the Canadian yeah. Yeah. Um, Ooh, the so Recce the, Carrier, yeah, do tell. Yeah, the, so Universal Carrier, everyone will be um, very familiar with. But uh, again, the, the Canadian one has got the big guns. So uh, again, you can start upgrading LMGs to, hit, uh, to medium machine guns mm -hmm. uh, and stick a couple of them on it. So you're potentially taking one of these things, a, a recce vehicle uh, would turn on the spot, going out with a couple of uh, Browning 50 cals on it. Uh, if, if you're that way inclined, I know I am. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I'd rather have the plus one than the rate of fire dice, I think. Yep. Well, then the skink. Skink. Oh, the skink. Talk to me about the oh, skink. The skink, then, was sticking a 20-millimeter cannon turret, well, four 20-millimeter mm -hmm. cannon turrets on a grizzly tank hull. Uh, they only ever made three of them. Uh, but here it is. If you're the sort of player who likes, you know, you don't like the mass-produced kind of, you, you see it in, uh, in every unit and you want something really different, really a little bit, um, you, you know, left of arc, then... Uh, take one of the three skinks that ever existed. Uh, so medium tank has easily catches fire, um, and uh, it's got a turret-mounted quad light auto cannon. But it's also got a special rule because it's experimental. It, it never hit mass production. 
So it always has to have an order check every time it's uh, activated because it's this weird kind of experimental vehicle. Uh, but its price reflects that as well. I tell you what, that is just so I've used uh, Verbal Wind a number of times in my games. And it's just so much fun to play with, especially if you've got an opponent in a building or something, you HE them, or you've got like lots of infantry out in the open, you can sort of like spread your templates out with the auto cannon, or just you know, mass fire at something. It's a lot of fun. But the biggest downside I had to the verbal wind is the fact that anything could pin it because it's open topped. Whereas this thing is enclosed and it's like, oh baby, that's a lot of firepower. Now I'm assuming after we talk about all of these awesome vehicles, that we have some selectors to back them up. And again, we have some uh, some little special rules to, to add that little extra flavor. Yeah, we've, we've certainly done exactly the same thing that we did here with the uh, the commando section of the book. The, the online vote we did, uh, the Canadians and commandos came first and second as, as the people's choice of what they wanted mm -hmm. in this book. So we really majored on that. So there's a lot of theater selectors. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, I suppose, yeah, the clues in the title, the Anglo-Canadian sector, and this mm -hmm. is thousands and thousands of soldiers coming off, uh, Juno beach. So we wanted to, uh, go further afield than that and cover the whole of, uh, the, the, the Canadian contributions to world war two as best we could. So instead of just saying, here's the Anglo-Canadian book, so you can do uh, Canadians in Normandy. We wanted to give players, Canadian players, the option to do anything from 39 to 45, right. uh, infantry, armoured, airborne, the lot. The first selector the Canadians get is Canadian Army 39 to 42, mm -hmm. uh, which covers that early war period, particularly the Far East, the fighting around Hong Kong and the Canadian contribution to that. So uh, that kind of limits the Canadian um, experience, so no veteran units. Uh, and not a great deal of armor to support the guys there. You then move on to a bit more conventional Canadian Infantry Division 43 to 44, uh, which is which is moving back to Europe and uh, some of the bigger operations there, um, which leads into uh, Canadian Infantry Division 45, which is uh, the, the stuff uh, for, for the push towards Germany itself. So you, if you're doing a infantry heavy Canadian force, just standard infantry, you've got three selectors straight away, depending on which uh, which part of the war you're going for before we then go into Canadian Airborne 44 to 45, uh, which then that kind of forces you to take that upgrade option you had to stubborn earlier. Um, and the Devil's Brigade veteran uh, mm -hmm. option uh, extends it to some of the other units as well. So you can start taking that on your uh, your gun teams as, uh, as, as well as your bespoke uh, parachute sections. Oh, that's uh, funny. You can have then... tough fighter gun teams. <laughs> Yeah, yes, you can. Awesome. Um, and yeah, scout sniper teams, um, um, even medics and chaplains, if you so choose. So um, we then move into the Canadian armor. So there's uh, a 43 to 44 list and a 45 list, which again, I just got those subtle differences on which vehicles uh, were available to the Canadian option uh, for the Canadian army for, for those two options. Uh, and that pretty much sums up the the many pages that is the Canadian Army's section of the book. That's awesome. Well, I mean, 
Guys, we've covered a ton, but we are tracking, you know, almost an hour and a half at this point, which isn't surprising given that this is a 200-page source book for Bolt Action. But what I love about what you guys have been talking about is not only all the great detail and the the care that went into not only making things that were historically accurate, um, but also to really give Bolt Action players different ways to play the game um, in a balanced and fun way. But, guys, it's it's so great that this book expands out beyond D-Day. I mean, we talked about the importance of um, the fighting in and around D-Day and the aftermath afterwards. But then to, to have so many, with the commandos and with the Canadians, to have so many selectors that go way beyond that into different time frames and theaters of the war is just makes this book such a great reference for those of us who love to play bolt action. So thank you so much for putting that time and that effort into just that little extra effort to, to stretch the, the boundaries of the book beyond the pages into uh, other conflicts. It really makes this uh, campaign book something special. It's awesome. Oh, yeah, thanks, Brad. Um, it, it was a lot of fun to write. And the thing that's got me with this book is, what force do I start first? I right? want to try something for things mm-hmm. yes i yeah I, I, yeah before signing off i just wanted to say a quick thank you to all the people who've been a part of it um we, we, we've mentioned a few names uh, rich humble didn't mention and really should have done because of all of this help particularly on the armored stuff but mm-hmm. also the play testers um each one of this is the fourth book i've done um and the play testing has escalated uh in scale the <laughs> And a, a lot of people say they're happy to play test and then don't. And it leaves the smaller number of people who do with, with quite a big burden. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, you know, maybe a lot of listeners will realize that the amount of effort that goes into play testing, because you can't, you can't play test your own stuff because you know what you're trying to say. You need mm-hmm. an independent set of eyes to read it and say, no, that is not saying what you think it says. Um, and the playtesters work really hard on it, and uh, they've, you know, made it what it is. So it's just a, I want to say a big thank you to all of those people. Brilliant. And Mark, thank you for all of your hard work on this. Gaz, you as well. And guys, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. Um, before we roll out, I know Mark, you've had uh, a, a, some a chance to say some final words. Gaz, did you want to say anything to add to that? I think that was a great way to end up, but. Always like to give the yeah. option. Again, thanks to all the playtesters. Uh, couldn't go through them. It would spend ages naming names. But thank you all. You know who you are. Uh, another big thank you out to the guys that helped us with source material, especially uh, Bovington Tank Museum. The guys in the archive there are absolutely brilliant um, and have helped no end with getting stuff right. So, yeah, huge thanks to them. And also, at time recording, the book is out pre-order on the uh, Waller website. So that's it. Go and get it up. I am literally pre-ordering it as we speak. <clears throat> I need to close that browser until we finish recording. Uh, but yes, guys, I'm super excited about this, and it gets me so jazzed to play Bolt Action again. Oof. Very excited. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. You at home taking the time to listen. We do appreciate it. We know that podcasts don't necessarily cost money. But for many of us these days, time is money or more more precious than money. And thank you for joining us and taking the time to and celebrate all of the wonderful games that Warlord makes. 
Guys, uh, we've had many suggestions uh, for episodes recently, and we've been trying to get to all of them that we can, and we've been getting tons of feedback by you, the listener. Uh, If you have anything that you would like to say about this particular episode or you want to hear about another great Warlord game or supplement that's coming up, there are a few more episodes up our sleeve coming very, very soon. But if you would like to uh, throw your hat in the ring and uh, let us know what you think, uh, please contact me. I am the host of this show. My name is Brad. Hi. Um, You can reach me through my personal podcast page which is called cast dice if you go to facebook and type in c-a-s-t-d-i-c-e if you type that you will find my page message it you are guaranteed a response and just say hey i was listening to the warlord cast and i think or whatever else that you think um tons of you have been messaging recently uh, and thank you for all the kind words and well wishes for those of us down in australia i am in the great town of melbourne down down south um and We do appreciate it. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for playing Warlord Games, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, stay safe. 